This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Zeynep Saleh, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Haverford College. We'll be talking about her book, Return to Ruin, Iraqi Narratives of Exile and Nostalgia, published by Stanford University Press earlier this year. So thank you very much, Dr. Saleh, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Um, to start off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to conceive of this book? Yes. So, in fact, I was born and raised in Iraq, and I left Iraq in 1997. So I lived through the Iran-Iraq War and the Gulf War of 1991 and the sanction years. And, of course, I lived through Saddam Hussein authoritarian regime all my life when I was in Iraq. Um, And one of the things that uh, growing up as a child and then later on, later on becoming an adult that I always heard is that how the Iran-Iraq war was a war of attrition that the United States uh, plunged the region into. And then in, in 1991, I saw the destruction of Iraq through the bombing Uh, of the United States and its allies, and then, of course, the imposition of the sanctions that really debilitated the Iraqi society, and how Britain and the United States played a huge role in imposing the sanctions and uh, vetoing any uh, efforts at the United Nations to lift the sanctions. So to me, from the very beginning, as just as as someone Iraqi growing up in Iraq, I always encountered um U.S. empire uh, and its intervention in Iraq. And then I left Iraq in 1997 and went to Lebanon for five years and did a degree in anthropology and decided to apply for a PhD program in the United States. And I came to the United States in 2002, six months before uh, the start of the invasion. Um, and I was really struck by the debate among the anti-war and the pro-war camps, which revolved around freedom and democracy versus colonialism, 
sovereignty versus imperialism and the human rights versus oil. To me, that debate remained very theoretical and ignored the realities under which Iraqi people um, lived. So, so So the debate was really silent about the impact of U.S. intervention in Iraq on Iraqis themselves. And Iraqis who've who've borne the brunt of Western government's intervention have been totally erased and silenced uh, in the United States. So I thought by writing a a book about Iraqis, I would bring to light some of the Uh, some of the details of their lives and how they encountered empire, how they dealt with destruction, how they tried to carve out uh, different notions uh, of uh, of selfhood. And I think you you do this brilliantly in the book. Um, You decenter the nation state as the prism through which to understand imperialism. And hearing a little bit about your background, it makes a lot of sense why you chose to do this. Um, And I was wondering if you could elaborate for our listeners on your concept of imperial encounters between US, Iraq, and Britain, um, and sort of tell our listeners what are the mean main interventions that you make about these issues? Yes, um, that's a very good question. So one of the things that um, really also uh, bothered me about the discourse on Iraq is the first thing was the silence and the erasure of Iraqi voices. But the second thing was how Iraq was portrayed as a place that is riddled by primordial affiliations. So the discourse was that Iraqis is inhabited by Sunni, Shia, Kurds, and they hate each other and they can't outgrow their uh, primordial hatred. And this is why you have uh, violence. Um, so to me, like first, this was this was an Orientalist understand it that ignored political and uh, historical events that took uh, shape uh, in Iraq. But also to me, trying to understand things in Iraq through the lens of the nation state only is insufficient. Um, so um, the book, so. The book, my book, aimed to write Iraqis back into imperial, into the imperial history of particularly of particularly the United States. So, to me, the histories of Iraq and the United States are are deeply intertwined together. On the one hand, the United States has had a direct impact on political developments in Iraq and the lives of Iraqis through its policies uh, of supporting regime changes and the perpetuation of war. On the other hand, Iraq has been essential to U.S. economic interests. So Iraqi arms purchases bolstered the military-industrial complex in the United States, and stable access to Middle East oil secured U.S. dominance in the global economy. So I employ the concept of imperial encounter to shed light on how the United States and Iraq, countries usually seen to occupy different worlds, are in fact entangled. So the concept of the encounter decenters the nation state and emphasizes global connections. 
So a mere focus on the nation state to understand histories of violence and displacement can seal the role of the uh, the role of Western imperial powers in shaping affairs in third world countries. So the framework of the encounter demonstrates that Iraq and the United States are no longer separate entities, but are entangled in unequal power power relations that have reconfigured the lives of Iraqis in particular. And I'm really inspired by scholars who have advised against approaching the United States as an entity confined to its territorial boundaries. Um, So rather, we must examine the relationship between U.S. imperialism and other countries and the U.S. efforts to produce subjects beyond its national boundaries through neoliberal policies. But to me, the story of Iraq is not only the story of neoliberal policies, because uh, Iraqis have experienced the U.S. empire through political and military interventions. So I approach the United States as a military empire and how it has asserted its right to threaten and employ violence in order to protect its interests and allies, promote its values, and safeguard the world from what it uh, regarded as evil forces. So in this framework, United States militarism is presented as a gift to other nations, taking the form of military aid, sales of weapons, training of troops, and the establishment of uh, bases. In Iraq, U.S. military involvement entailed military interventions in three wars and an an and an occupation, the sales of arms, economic aid to Saddam Hussein's regime in the 80s, training of the Iraqi army and police after the invasion, and the establishment of bases in the Gulf region. But it also involved the backing of coups, the support of authoritarian authoritarian regimes, and the imposition of economic uh, sanctions. Um, And the United States has always relied on different discourses to justify its intervention in Iraq. So, for example, it framed its support of uh, Saddam Hussein's regime in the 80s as protecting its national uh, interest in the region and its imposition of these sanctions in the 90s as aiming to disarm Iraq of weapons of mass destruction and uh, protect allies in the region. And finally, it framed its invasion uh, of Iraq in 2003 as delivering U.S. values, namely freedom and democracy um, to the Iraqi people. So to me, that story was really important and I wanted to emphasize uh, in the book. But also another aspect is that I wanted to show how U.S. military interventions in Iraq impacted Iraqis themselves. Like, what did this intervention look like um, on the ground? And I, when I, I did my fieldwork in London with Iraqi exiles, and uh, when I was talking to them, I realized that, in fact, their narratives of displacement, as well as their life trajectories, were deeply enmeshed in imperial interventions in Iraq that have taken place since the early 20th century and continue to the present. So Iraqis in London, I really like Iraqis in Iraq, <clears throat> are imperial subjects whose lives is whose life are inseparable from the history of Britain and the United States in the region, particularly the latter's effort to safeguard U.S. companies' access to Iraqi oil and to deter 
Iraq from embracing communism during the Cold War and to support regimes that would guarantee what the United States perceived as regional stability. So to me, showing how Iraqis experienced empire was really important and uh, bringing an, um, the lens of empire into understanding events in Iraq decenters the nation state. So the nation state is still important, but it's not the only uh, dimension or aspect to focus on because we really have to look at international interventions to understand the complexity of the situation in Iraq. Yeah, these are all very important uh, interventions that you make in the book. And I also find how you make these interventions very provocative, um, especially since your book relies on life histories of Iraqis in London and your own. And these life histories appear as both narrative and methodological tools. So I'm wondering what is politically and theoretically at stake in structuring a book around life histories and narratives and situating yourself within this framework? Yes, um, thank you. That's a very good question. So one of the things I really grappled with a lot writing this book is how to render the rich stories I heard in London. Because Iraqis are really avid storytellers and they talked eloquently about their lives and the past and their nostalgia. So to me, rendering these stories in a meaningful way was a big challenge. Um, so I thought I will rely on life uh, um, history in this uh, case. So storytelling really defined my field war. So my Iraqi interlocutors in London eloquently told me stories about their lives and experiences in Iraq and about their efforts to define home and selfhood. So in doing so, they were also trying to make sense of the present and reflect on the past. So I realized that, in fact, storytelling to them became a way to reconnect with their homeland, to guard against the erasure of their past, and to carve out an Iraqi subjectivity against fragmentation and war. So the idea that anthropology is embedded in storytelling and that its challenge is how to render these stories have been crucial to my use of life stories to offer a more nuanced picture of Iraqis' aspirations and losses. So rather than selecting snippets from a large pool of interviews that would fit my analysis, I share the life stories of five Iraqis to provide uninterrupted narratives of their evolving perception of their lives as well as their uh, positions at political moments that shape their trajectories. Moreover, these life stories reveal emerging and shifting discourses on home, the past, and Iraqi subjectivity within the Iraqi community in London. So storytelling, narratives, and testimonies have emerged as a technique of empowerment and bearing witness for a Black and Chicana feminist concerned about the mainstream representation of women like themselves whose histories and realities were erased and misrepresented. So employing the binary of the oppressor-oppressed, Bell Hooks argues that and I quote her here, as subject, people have the right to define their own reality, establish their own identities, 
name their history. As objects, one's reality is defined by others, one's identity created by others, one history named only in ways that define one's relationship to those in power. Uh, end of quote. So for oppressed people to become subject and engage in liberatory, liber, liberatory projects, resistance to mainstream myths about them entails identifying them as, um, as subjects and giving them space um, to speak. And for Iraqis who are faced with daily news about sectarian violence in Iraq and simplistic media representation of them, they really aim to provide alternative accounts of their history and experiences through narratives and life stories. So for them, the efforts to carve out an Iraqi subjectivity rooted in historical events and structures of power were meant to resist the politics of erasure that rendered them as faceless statistics and uh, portrayed them as sectarian subject. So reclaiming their, fo- their voice through storytelling enabled them to claim authorship of their own narratives and to shed light on their daily struggles and interpretations of events. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And you certainly do a wonderful job in rendering Iraqis' histories meaningfully, as you put it. Um, and you know, one thing that struck me as a reader was how you show that Iraqis in London fashion their political subjectivities in multiple ways. So you know, you don't you do this great work in showing that you know an Iraqi subject is not this one-dimensional. Um, being, but um, gender, class, religion figure into subject making, especially in exile. Um, so I was wondering if you could elaborate on this a little bit for our listeners. Yes. Um, so one of the things that I noticed when I went to uh, to London, so it's interesting, I arrived in London in 2006, and it was really a pivotal moment Uh, for Iraqis in London, because up to that moment, they really believed that things could change in Iraq and return would be possible. And after 2006, with the uh, uh, spread of sectarian violence and violence perpetuated by the uh, U.S. military, this uh, hope of return was uh, was lost and not only that but the whole question of who is an iraqi or what it what it means to be an iraqi became such a pressing issue and i noticed that there are they were in fact different narratives of selfhood on Iraqis, narratives that were informed by class and gendered uh, uh, sensibilities. So I, in my book, in fact, I talk about three narratives um, and look at how class and uh, gender uh, informed these narratives. So the first narrative I talk about is the narrative of the revolution. 
And that narrative was championed by Iraqi communists who came of age in the mid-40s and participated in the anti-colonial struggle against the British. Um, so to these Iraqi, they thought of themselves as the true Iraqis, as Iraqis who witnessed uh, a secular, vibrant Iraq, um, an Iraq that was politically and socially um, vibrant. So, so they saw themselves as the true Iraqis. And, um, and the interesting thing about that narrative is that it was a very classed and gendered narrative because really the status of women and especially the ability of women to participate in demonstrations was taken as uh, as a sign of the modernity of the nation state. So like, again, here we have an example of how the status of, of women is interconnected with the notion of the modernity um, of the state. So, 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 and communist women really saw themselves as being role model um, who, initi- who, who ushered in a, a, a different path for women, that women can get educated, women can take part in political roles and have political aspirations. So that in that, uh, in that regard, gender was extremely important. But on the other hand, when we think about these narratives, they are also very classed. And when Iraqis reminisced about the past and they were very nostalgic about the past and the vibrant intellectual um, uh, landscape that dominated, they were really talking about the experiences of middle-class Baghdadis. Uh, So when they talked about going to exhibitions and uh, reading books and exchanging books and going to cafes to discuss new books and listen to music, they were really talking about the experience of middle-class people and they totally erased the living situation of the majority of Iraqis at the time who lived in abject poverty. Um, And of course, this discourse of the revolution was also very anti-religion in its uh, aspiration. So secular Iraqis who came of age in the 40s and the 50s saw themselves as people who are leaving behind tradition and endorsing modernity. And they relegated religion to the domain of the tra- uh, of the traditional. Um, so, so that was an impo- one important uh, narrative. The other n- important narrative that was also dominant in um, in London uh, was the religious narrative that aimed to really undermine this uh, secular modernist understanding of Iraq. So to religious people in London, and specifically to Shia Muslims, Iraq is not a center of secular politics and anti-colonial struggle. To them, Iraq is a holy place, and, uh, and their religious identity is seen as being embedded in that holy place. Um, So religious people have been trying to really write themselves into the Iraqi narrative and being part of the Iraqi narrative rather than being outside it as the discourse by the communists tried to do. 
And what's also interesting about this narrative is that it was also classed and gendered. So the question of gender is really interesting because in this narrative, the role model is no longer the communist woman who is taking part in anti-colonial struggle, but rather the role model is uh, our historical figures associated with Shia Islam. Um, so they represented, for example, Sayyida Zainab in Iraq represented uh, a, a model of uh, courage, patience, endurance that religious women could relate to. Um, but this narrative, again, remained very classed and middle class focused. So, for example, some of the religious people I encountered in London were really dismissive uh, of people in the South as being the ones who follow religion um, uh, without total understanding, as the ones who endorse sectarian discourse. So they really were talking about, they were, ex- they, they approach religion through their middle class experience. Um, And the last uh, narrative that I encountered in London that was really beginning to gain a lot of prominence is the narrative of endurance. Um, So in in London, the Iraqi community was really anxious about what it means to live in London for two, three decades and not being able to live in Iraq and experience what Iraqis uh, went through. So that was really a very um, a very important sensitive topic that they always reflected on. And I noticed that Iraqis in London who've been in London for like 20, 30 years began to look at Iraqis who left after 2003 as the true Iraqis, as the Iraqis who lived through uh, wars, sanctions, and violence. Um, And in this narrative, the women, especially the lower middle class women, emerged as the idol because it was it was women who really held the families together, who made ends meet. So, so there was a shift again. So the shift here in terms of gender is that it's no longer the communist woman who is the role model or a religious figure from the past, but it's really an Iraqi woman who lived through wars and sanctions and violence and endured in the face of difficulties. Um, So so that was a gender shift in the understanding of selfhood, but it was also a recognition of class and how really um, lower and lower middle class women had to shoulder a huge burden that women in other classes didn't have to shoulder. So all these narratives really are focused on what it means to be in, to be an Iraqi, and they bring in religion, gender, um, and the class into defining identity. Yeah, and within this terrain of multiplicity, you know, as you mentioned, we see this emergence of an authentic Iraqi subject. Um, 
and you know this authenticity is recognized by other Iraqis in London. Um, so I'm wondering what authenticity comes to me- mean in exile and what it does um, in the lives of Iraqis. Yeah, so it's interesting, really, the question of um, of who is an Iraqi and who experienced the true Iraq was really tied um, to the notion of, of authenticity. Um, so there was really debate of who is an authentic Iraqi, and it was really an open field. Um, so again, uh, communists saw themselves as being the authentic Iraqis because they lived through the 50s and the 60s uh, when Iraq was vibrant. Um, religious people thought themselves as being authentic because they also suffered at the hands of Saddam Hussein um, uh, regime and they felt that their experience gave them a unique uh, Iraqi experience um, and of course then you have the uh, you have uh, the discourse of endurance and its uh, connections to authenticity. So the more you endured, the more you are authentic. So that was the discourse in London. The more you endured, the more you are authentic. So the question of authenticity, that it was such a charged question that everyone tried, tried to make a claim on. And what is interesting is that this claim of authenticity was really, to me, the way I read it, was really situated in anxiety over Iraq, especially because of the dominance of sectarianism and the dominance of of sectarian discourse and media representation of Iraq. So the fact that uh, Iraqis were identified as Sunni, Shia, and Kurds um, really raised a question for them what it means to be an Iraqi. And there was this idea that if you can make a claim on a specific historical era, then you can claim you are um, authentic. But of course, like the question of authenticity here is always tied to uh, anxiety about exile and the anxiety about uh, not having lived in Iraq and not having... uh, experienced uh, what uh, Iraqis went through. So the whole question becomes again, what it means to be an Iraqi in London in this case. Um, so, so, so there was a lot of debate about authenticity, but it's not authenticity in terms of like rootedness or primordial um, identities. It was more about what it means to be an Iraqi in the face of fragmentation of uh, Iraq and in the face of sectarianism. Uh, Who can claim to be an Iraqi and what does that claim mean? And amidst these anxieties and shifting terrain of politics, what do home and return come to mean for the Iraqis we met in Return to Ruin? Um, And, you know, I also wonder how these notions become entangled with nostalgia. 
Yeah, it's so really the question of home was such an important issue. Like really Iraqis lived and breathed Iraq and especially for the older generation who lived through the 50s, like through that some people consider the 50s as the golden age. Um, so it was really heartbreaking to talk to them because they were they were really struggling with the notion of home and the idea of the destruction of Iraq, um, and the where and the whole question for them was where is home now? Because until two thousand and six, they believed Iraq is home, and we are going back there. And of course, after 2006, there was a shift and the realization was that, in fact, London is home and now we are Iraqis in London. Um, so, so home was always articulated and disarticulated um, in conditions of exile um, and uh, wars. Um, and the, when thinking about home, the question of nostalgia always came up in the conversations. Um, so Iraqis really idealized the past to a, to a great extent. And of course, when there is idealizing, when, when people idealize the past, they do so vis-a-vis -vis the present. So because the present is so bleak, the past become offer, the past offers a refuge from the present. Um, so nostalgia was extremely important. And again, nostalgia wasn't like one um, undifferentiated category because they were different types of nostalgia. So, for example, uh, uh, people who lived in the 50s, um, like Iraqi communists I met, um, they really engaged into what uh, Svetlana Boim calls um, um, restorative nostalgia. Um, so restorative nostalgia is nostalgia that thinks of its narratives as represented truths and traditions. So to Iraqi communists, like their experience of the past represented to them the true history of Iraq, the um, that if you wanted to be Iraqi and experience what Iraq was, then you should have lived in the 50s. But there were other people who were nostalgic about the past, but they didn't idealize the past. So they and they they really manifested what Svetlana Boim called reflective nostalgia. So they talked about the ambivalence of home and belonging, um, and the disjuncture of return. So to a lot of Iraqis, like I would say, even nostalgia became such a such a painful, such a painful issue after return. So a lot of Iraqis I met in London went back to Iraq and at one point, um, and they were disappointed to a great extent uh, because before they had an idealized view of Iraq that they could cling to. While after they went back, that image was shattered. They saw what Iraq looked like um, on the on the ground. So really, the interesting thing was that no, their nostalgia increased and their idealize, idealization of the past um, increased. So so the experience of home the meaning of return and nostalgia are all interconnected together here. And people are always trying to figure them out. Like it's not, 
want it's not like a, it's not an end point that you reach and that's it you figure it out it's an ongoing process an ongoing process over anxiety about uh, iraq uh, about uh, interpretations of the past and about the meaning of return of course in this case and in some of the narratives you know we see that of course iraqi subjectivities Uh, are ongoing uh, becomings and they are constructed through particular journeys. Um, so I'm wondering how you see the connection between mobility and the possibility of mobility and subject making. Yeah, um, so I talk about mobility um, um, uh, in one of the chapters a lot. So the ch- chapter four is about this young woman, Hajar whose family was uh, deported from Iraq in 1980 under the pretext of being of Iranian origin. And of course, when they went to Iran, they were told they are Arabs, even though in fact they are Kurds, and they were alienated and marginalized. And uh, in, 1990, uh, in 1990, um, uh, they realized that going back to Iraq is no longer possible, so they managed to re- relocate to London. And to Hazar, the question, to Hajar, sorry, her, her real name in pseudonym is Hazar, uh, but her Iranian frame is, uh, name is Hajar. So to Hajar, the question of what is home was a very pressing one because she always felt she never had a home because she was too young when she was deported in uh, from Iraq. Um, her family didn't allow her Uh, to feel that Iran was home or the Iranians, because Iranians always call them Arabs. And then when she went to London, she felt alienated because she was veiled and it was a completely different society. So she struggled with the notion of home for a long time in her life and uh, cultivating an Iraqi identity was very important to her. Uh, But this Iraqi identity was tied to religion as well, because to her, to be Iraqi, it means to be a Shia and a Kurd. So so her ethnicity and her religion um, connected her to Iraq. So one of the things she decided to do is to go to, uh, to Hajj in Saudi Arabia to have a religious experience, and then to go to Sayyida Zainab in Syria to um, to visit, uh, to, to do pilgrimage. Um, and uh, so that happened up to 2002. And she was really yearning to go to Iraq, but she couldn't because her family was deported. And after the fall of Saddam Hussein's regime, She managed to go to Iraq and she went to Baghdad to her uh, childhood neighborhood. Then she went to holy cities in Najaf and Karbala um, to, pay, uh, to pay pilgrimage. And she felt at home in these places and she felt that she has her own memories uh, now of Iraq. But what was interesting about this process is that it was an ongoing process. So she always felt the need 
um, to make these journeys to reaffirm her belonging um, uh, to Iraq. So, so the notion of home for Hajar was not a stable, uh, fixed, or taken for a granted uh, thing. So instead, home, home was always a shifting and contested concept that constantly needed to be reaffirmed through journeys to other places. It was a place rooted in and routed through multiple locations, but with an ongoing expectation of home uh, coming. So Hajar was constantly embarking on journeys to Baghdad, Najaf, Karbala, and Mecca, only to come back to London. And then start. Then a new journey would begin whenever she had the opportunity. So while in London, she yearned for these distant cities. But as soon as, soon as she was away, she yearned for London. So to me, her story shows it's really through these processes of travel and homecoming that Hajar carved out an Iraqi British and Muslim British British subjectivity that marked a shift from the discourse of an Iraqi subjectivity centered on national struggle and political activism. So each journey affirmed some aspects of her identity because they enabled her to establish roots in different places and enjoy everyday happenings that she had not experienced while she's in London. So Hajar felt at home whenever she arrived in Iraq, heard Iraqis uh, shout at each other in the Iraqi dialect, sat on an Iraqi sofa that we call uh, Karawita, visited and touched the shrines of Imam Ali and Imam Hussein, went on pilgrimage uh, to Saudi Arabia and felt proximity to God and the Prophet and returned to the gloomy skies and the queues of London. So she inhabited a subjectivity that was produced in the processes of homecoming. The search for her, for her the search for home and a sense of selfhood was constantly reenacted through journeying. Thank you very much for this response that, you know, really mirrors the essence of your book. Like, I love that your response actually is rooted in life histories, uh, which brings me to my next question. Um, you know, within Return to Ruin, we see that life histories are not a one-way street, um, and instead they appear as reciprocal forms of relating between you and the Iraqis we come to meet. Um, so can you tell us about the reciprocity of storytelling and how it figured into your research and writing process? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very good question, in fact. Um, so the, life, the five life stories of Iraqi Londoners that anchor this book um, intersected with my life story and experiences in Iraq. So during the span of my fieldwork, I became a storyteller to my interlocutors in London, as they were as curious about my story as I was about theirs. So narrating my life thus became part of the ritual of my fieldwork. More importantly, my life story was a way to gain the trust of my interlocutors. During the 80s, Saddam Hussein's agents operated freely in London, and sent reports back to Baghdad. Though the British government expelled these agents after the invasion of Kuwait in 1990, 
Iraqi Londoners still distrusted new faces in the community. After 2003, Iraqis were concerned that the new arrivals might be Saddam Hussein's loyalists. And so establishing that I wasn't a loyalist was an important aspect of my fieldwork. So in order to gain people's trust, I had to talk about my background and experiences in Iraq, in particular the death of my parents and sister due to Saddam Hussein's persecution. Iraqis in London decided to share their stories with me because they identified with me on certain level. To the communists, I was the daughter of their comrades since both of my parents were communists. Religious people warmed up uh, to me, though they disapproved of my lack of religiosity because my father hailed from Negev, a holy Shia city in southern Iraq. For others, it was my story about losing my family that connected Uh, that they connected with, because as they said, I understood what suffering meant. The young generation who grew up under Saddam Hussein's regime shared with me how their parents instilled caution and fear in them from a young age in the 80s and how the sanctions in the 90s exposed them to financial hardships. Given Given the intersection of my life story with various narratives of my interlocutors, Uh, were such an integral part of my fieldwork, I decided to include parts of my story between the chapters um, of this book. And in fact, through these narratives, I, like Iraqi Londoners, I'm also carving out an Iraqi political subjectivity informed by war and violence and a notion of home that is defined by fear and dissonance with the stories I heard from my parents about um, the good old days. So it was really amazing how open Iraqis were uh, with me. And they were curious, of course, about me. And I felt that I owe it to them to tell them my story. So hence, my story became part of the story of the book. And I included uh, uh, short snippets of my life in Iraq um, before each chapter, just to give the readers a sense of the connections I met, I, I made with my interlocutors. And all this work also brings up trust in very interesting ways uh, throughout your book. Um, as you also know, in many anthropological accounts, trust appears as something to be gained or as a means to the end of data collection, you know, the ultimate end. <laughs> and however, in your book, we see trust as something that permeates how you navigate your relationships with Iraqis in London. So what does trust methodologically do in your work? And how does return to ruin challenge common anthropological tropes of trust? Thank you. Um, so, so trust was really an interesting issue for me. And I think when I got to the field, um, being, being an Iraqi and Iraqis relating to me as an Iraqi um, was the main issue I was trying to really navigate. Um, so, of course, Iraqis had to trust me as an Iraqi who is not Saddam Hussein's loyalist. And then Iraqis had to trust me 
as someone who will write about them and respect their privacy and their confidentiality. Um, so Trust figured out a lot, not just uh, as an anthropologist who's trying to collect data, but how to fundamentally connect to Iraqis um, uh, and relate to them. So, so, so my story really had to make sense for them, uh, in, for in order for them to um, to to trust me, and uh, that meant I had to be vulnerable, and they had to be vulnerable, um, and I really created very intimate. Um, uh, I built very intimate friendships with a lot of Iraqis in London who really confined in me things that never made it to the book and will never make it into any writing because they were really just fundamentally connecting with me as an Iraqi who lives in the U.S., who is open, who wouldn't judge them because of their sexuality or their uh, uh, life uh, love stories. It was a process to gain Ira 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 uh, the trust of Iraqis in London. And uh, one of the things, in fact, um, it just occurred to me, um, and I talk about that in the book, is that in Iraq, I never had friends. Of course, I had friends in school and acquaintances, but I never had friends that I could really trust. I could tell them about my fears about Saddam Hussein's regime, uh, my family's opposition to Saddam Hussein's regime. I could never in Iraq trust someone I could share that with. And in London, for the first time in, me, in my life, I had a true friendships with Iraqis that was not filtered through fear and caution and distrust. So I think the question of trust wasn't just like about Iraqis um, trusting me with their stories, but it was also for me to trust them with my story and to trust them with the stories about my life in Iraq for the first time in my life. Um, so that so really the question of trust. I think it's a very good question, and it was really an interesting question because, like like life story, it wasn't a one way process. It was two ways. Like I also managed to start trusting Iraqis and not associate them with Saddam Hussein or with violence. Thank you very much, Dr. Saleh, for your insights and sharing so much about yourself alongside your book. Uh, we really appreciate that you joined us today. Thank you very much for your time. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of Return to Ruin, Iraqi Narratives of Exile and Nostalgia, published by Stanford University Press in 2020, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.